Today's sponsor is Loot Crate. For less than 20 bucks a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat every month. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with 40 bucks worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, etc. delivered to your mailbox every month. This month's theme is time, and quite appropriately, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future, the timeless appeal of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, and the timey-wimey charm of Doctor Who. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. But when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com, L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E.com slash Nate, and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Loot Crate. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Howl FM, the best and most convenient way to listen to all the episodes of Reading Aloud. On the web at howl.fm and on the go with the Howl app. Yeah, you can stream and download all Reading Aloud episodes that have been released in the past six months and go beyond the audio with behind-the-scenes photos, commentaries, and more. But there's a way to go further. Yes, you can go deeper by upgrading to Howl Premium for only $4.99 a month. You get exclusive access to the entire Reading Aloud archive and to all the Earwolf and Wolf Pop archives. This includes all episodes older than six months, all remastered with zero ads. That's right. No ads. Only with Howl Premium, listen to hundreds of hours of the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, classic interviews in there, Robin Williams, Louis C.K., and more. Howl has also partnered with some of your favorite hosts and comedians to develop Howl Originals, brand new shows available only with Howl Premium. Check out the great new series from Lauren Lapkus and the AV Club right now. Already, there are 10 brand new hilarious Howl Originals, and we're adding new shows every week. Get access to all this exclusive content, both on your phone and on your desktop, with Howl Premium for only $4.99 per month. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month of a free trial. Just go to howl.fm and enter code READING at checkout. Remember, you can use Howl on your phone or your computer, but you can only use my promo code on howl.fm. That's the website. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, and use the promo code READING for one free trial of Howl Premium. Episode 34 of Reading Aloud is here. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the show. Thanks so much for joining us. There are 33 other episodes you can listen to. If you're not a regular listener to Reading Aloud, you can listen to it on your phone with the new Howl app, H-O-W-L. It's a fantastic app that'll bring you not only my show, but all of the shows on the Wolf Pop and Earwolf networks. That's sort of a must-have if you like podcasts. If you're listening on your computer, you can just go to readingaloud.wolfpop.com. You can listen there. However you're listening, thanks for being a part of the show. Another really fun show... We're back with an interview today. We talked to Seth Grossman. Seth works in reality television, and he wrote a fantastic op-ed in this past Sunday's uh, Sunday Times, Sunday New York Times. 
believe it was September September 26th. It's really funny. And he lives here in Los Angeles. So I had him come in and chat. And then uh, he read the piece. And it was great. So we're going to get to that. But before we get to that, a couple things. First, Jonathan Franzen's Purity is this month's book club selection. And we have, as usual, a great group of people coming in to chat about this book. That's going to be the third... um, First, yeah, the third week of October. So get in your thoughts on purity, read it, and then share us, uh, share the thoughts with us here at the podcast. You can reach us at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And we want to have your thoughts be a part of the book cast, book uh, club, so you're included in the podcast. Uh, also, um, there is no live show in October, uh, but we'll be back in November. So uh, stay tuned for another live show announcement. So get purity. Check it out, read it, and share your thoughts with us. You can follow the show on Twitter as well. Um, we're at Reading Aloud Pod, and I'm at I'm Nate Cordry. For all sorts of podcast updates, go there. Um, but before we get to Seth and a piece that I'll be reading to finish the show, my buddy Mike Freeman came down to the UCB and not only made his UCB debut, but his Reading Aloud debut. He read a really great piece that I found uh, from the Onion commentary section. I wish I could credit the writer, but it, it it's a fictional piece written by the head of the Audubon Society, <laughs> and it's about a goose. <laughs> uh, it's funny because Sam and I uh, were just chatting about geese Moments ago. It's loose. And I've been saying, you. I don't know what we were talking about, but I said I've just been, I've been such a silly goose recently. It's loose. And then I said, the goose is loose. It's all over the studio. There's a goose somewhere in the studio. We're going to find it and we're going to put it down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so here is Mike Freeman live at the UCB Theater reading a fantastic piece from the Onion Commentary section written by the president of the Audubon Society. Here is my dear pal, Mikey Freeman. Welcome to the stage, my dear friend, Mike Freeman. spent my whole adult life promoting species diversity and protecting birds. <laughs> my current capacity as president and CEO of the Audubon Society. <laughs> work tirelessly to raise awareness of the habitat destruction that threatens these incredible, beautiful creatures. I love birds. <laughs> I love all birds. But I'm not gonna pretend like this incident in my past didn't happen. And I'm not gonna try to defend my actions either. Yes, I did it. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. One time, a couple of years ago, I punched a goose. (laughs) I punched it right out of the air. I still don't know what came over me, birds obviously mean the world to me, so decking a goose in mid-flight was completely out of character. It hasn't happened since. I certainly don't think it will ever happen again, but I don't want to say it definitely won't because I I never really thought I would do it in the first place. It was purely an instinctive reaction. 
I turned around and all I could see was this big beady-eyed bastard honking like a lunatic and pumping away right toward me and then BAM! Next thing I know, feathers are flying everywhere. I hear a, a meek, muffled honk, and this stunned Canada goose is lying at my feet. I mean, just to be totally clear, I didn't kill it or anything, and thank God for that. I don't know if I could live with myself if I took the life of a creature that I've sworn to protect. After the rush of adrenaline wore off, I, I set the goose up right. It toddled away. I'm sure it wasn't a hundred percent, you know, for a couple days, but other than being dazed, it didn't seem much worse for the wear. <laughs> that said, I did pop him pretty good. I mean, I wound up from the shoulder, and I rotated through my hips, and pow! My fist plowed into that fucker dead center beam. And it just dropped like a crumpled up paper bag lying there on the ground. I'd like to point out that I didn't just go out into the woods and start punching wild geese or show up at a farm and start pounding away at the domestic variety. I wasn't looking for a fight. I was just walking through the park, my house, minding my own business, when all of a sudden this big fucking goon flew up in my face. Okay, yes, it was a couple of feet above my head, and I had to jump a little bit to connect my eyes. And yes, this guy walking by saw me punch the goose, and he was like, holy shit, that was amazing. And maybe I said, I know, right? Fucking boom! Right out of here. Again, it was reflexes, pure and simple. After that, I held myself back. I could have finished off that big old son of a bitch right there with a quick boot to the sternum, but I restrained myself. I showed the goose mercy because I love birds. <laughs> and if you share this love for our precious avian friends, I urge you to join your local Autobahn chapter today. <laughs> you'll meet fellow bird watchers, you'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, and you'll help support bird sanctuaries all across America. Now look, in a lot of ways, I don't even know why I'm telling you this story at all. So I punched a goose, a goddamn Canada goose. My track record is still nearly flawless. <laughs> I think my work with the pied-billed grebe and the black-throated loon and countless other species of waterfowl speaks for itself. And God knows there are plenty of fucking Canada geese out there. It's not like I punched a giant ibis or a dusky star front or some other critically endangered bird. If I somehow managed to house a dusky star frontlet right out of the air, I wouldn't even be apologizing. That would be superhuman. <laughs> Quick sidebar. I just want you to consider the kind of razor-sharp instincts it requires to punch a bird on the wing out of the sky. <laughs> For just one minute. Now don't attach your notions of right and wrong to the scenario I'm describing, and think about it purely from a physical prowess perspective. Just knowing that you can do that, it's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, right? Anyway, what I'd like to get across here is that I don't want to be vilified for this one transgression. Belting a goose out of the air on a single occasion incredible feat of athleticism, as we established, does not invalidate my lifelong commitment to environmental causes. Outside of this one unfortunate 
if very impressive, act. I've never done anything to harm a living creature. Except for puffins. <laughs> I will punt those goofy, chubby little fuckers across the landscape any chance I get. Mike Freeman! Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Then Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with 40 bucks worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, etc., delivered to your mailbox every month. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash nate and enter code nate to save three bucks on any new subscription. Every month there is a new theme, which are all inspired by classic movie and video game releases, as well as pulling from pop culture favorites. Previous crates have included items like The Walking Dead, Star Wars, Marvel, Legend of Zelda, and many more. This month's theme is time, and quite appropriately, we're celebrating the 30th, 30th anniversary of Back to the Future, the timeless appeal of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, and the timey-wimey charm of Doctor Who. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. Do we mention we ship to over 13 different countries? Yeah. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe. If you miss that deadline, too late. You have to wait till the next month. So make sure you subscribe before 9 p.m. Pacific on the 19th of every month. And go to LootCrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Loot Crate. Seth Grossman is my guest. Uh, hey, man. Hey. Thanks going? so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Uh, what do you do for a living? Right now I'm working on a show for National Geographic called Big Fish Texas. I produce uh, reality shows, and uh, in between reality shows I make feature films. Oh, cool. Yeah. How did you find your way to, uh, to reality television? In 2005, I had uh, I, I graduated from NYU. I had made a very successful short film, um, and I had the opportunity to direct a feature film. That one premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. It's wow. The Elephant King. It had Ellen Burstyn. And uh, I was really excited about it, more so than distributors. Um, yeah, so right. it took it took a while to get that movie out there. And I had expected upon making my first feature film for some kind of golden door to open yeah, sure. to Hollywood. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's just offers and yeah. you know, caviar yeah, and Lamborghinis. Cool cars, exactly. You know, that exactly. didn't happen. So I contacted a friend of mine who I knew was making a living in uh, visual storytelling. Yeah. The only guy I knew who was doing it. Uh, he was working for a show on MTV called Made, and I said, hey, what can I do? Can I work oh, there? I know it well. Yeah, so I started as a story producer there and worked my way up. And that was all produced in New York? Uh, the show was shot all over the country. Right. But, yeah, it was produced in New York. So, uh, were you going to 1515 Broadway every oh, day? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I have, I have so many friends who started out there after college just, like, basically as interns and, like, sure. logging tape. Sure. Um I don't think any of them are there now. I'm not sure. But I got I got Craig Johnson his first uh, his first gig there after film school, and now he he directed the Skeleton Twins, and he just did another movie. right. Yeah, was he another NYU? He was. Guy? He was a, a it feels year like or two a straight. I have a bunch of friends who went to Hampshire College, and they were mm -hmm. studying film, and they got jobs there. And some other kids who went to NYU, um, but they seem to hire. They want they want 
inspired young hungry film mm-hmm. kids who yeah. like want to fucking bust their asses yeah. and that show is huge i used to sit down on saturdays living in new york and just watch 10 of those sure. in a row sure yeah um and it's a great formula i used to think uh, of it's it a as great sort of premise. like it's, it's genius yeah it's transformational aspirational i used to think of it as sort of like the roger corman factory for uh, aspiring young filmmakers just put people <laughs> totally. through that experience and they yep. they come out knowing how to tell a story really efficiently absolutely yeah i, I remember the guy who could stop getting uh, plastic surgery. It was the first time I saw what that uh, what calf implants were. Oh, wow. I had never heard of that. Mm-hmm. And that was his final thing that he was missing. He's like, my calves aren't perfect, and right. I need to get calf implants. Wow. And I was watching the show just utterly fascinated. Yeah. And, and I think it was Made was also, did that show have a coach? Yeah, every okay. episode had a coach. There was like some drama kid who wanted to make it on the basketball team. Mm-hmm. And anyway, that show is... There usually is a drama kid who wants to make it on the, on the <laughs> Yeah, prom absolutely. Kid. Yeah. I did an interesting episode about a kid who had Asperger's <laughs> who wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Holy shit, I remember this episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cool. What state was this? He was in Connecticut, Okay, I, I thought Jersey or something. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, he might yeah. have been... In, it was up there. It was near New York. Yeah, I remember yeah, it wasn't yeah. a long drive. And we took him down to was like the Chuckle Hut and it, it, outside of Atlanta and Josh Blue, who's this fantastic comedian. Yes. And, uh, oh and my just, God. he was like the last comic standing contestant, also has some kind of uh, physical challenge or disability or whatever. Right. That, you know. And he and he was a great coach because he really taught our uh, our lead, whose name I also forgot, how to um, – you know, how to take his disability and turn it into fodder for comedy. Yeah, absolutely. So it in a great episode. And I remember being so moved by that, watching it. Uh, mm-hmm. He, uh, okay, so Josh Blue has cerebral palsy, and he he also, he was voted the last comic standing on uh, its fourth season. He won. Yeah, he's hilarious. Amazing um, guy. Super funny. And, God, I remember that episode. Ryan Decker. Ryan it's Decker. with an I, R-I-A-N. He's now a front desk agent at Homewood Suites by Hilton. So you see... It really does launch. Career. Yes. Yeah. Good for good for you and good for Maid. Yeah. What's your uh, favorite reality show that you watch nonstop that you're most uh, obsessed with? I don't watch a ton of reality. Because you spend so much time. Uh, yeah, I make yeah. a lot of it. Um, what do I watch? I I do like Vice on HBO. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic show. Yeah, me too. A um, friend of mine uh, is sort of one of their EPs and he's he's doing great work the prison episode was fantastic I didn't see that episode oh it's great it's great it, it's really uh, it's part of the zeitgeist now this this problem with uh, America's prisons and overcrowding yeah. and the for profit nature of them mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you saw Empire the other day but uh, I did not yeah so the premiere of Empire is very zeitgeisty it's very much like we have to free um, Lucius Lyons who's right. gone to jail and it sort of ties it into a lot of the things that have been happening with Black Lives Matter and mm. I Can't Breathe and mm. prison overpopulation. Yeah. Um, so. I, I used to, th- when I was living in New York, Vice Magazine, to me, was, I just rolled my eyes at yeah. it because it was, it was just do's and don'ts. Yeah. Do you remember that shit? Oh, yeah, it was just hipster assholes. Yeah, just like, snarky yeah. fucking jerks that yeah. I wanted to punch in the face right. in bars in Williamsburg. I was like, fuck Vice. This is such-. And then they tried to be cool and credible, and I was like, fuck this. And then I watched their show, and I was like, oh, I feel like they've kind of, they've, I don't know if they have a change in ownership or the editorial staff turned over at some time in the last four or five years, but their show is great. Yeah, they've got some credibility. And they do. They've got some integrity. It's yeah. a good show. I watch that, and I, sometimes I'll watch Naked and Afraid. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 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 I heard those uh, the producers were on KPCC a couple weeks ago talking about the show. I think they're British, I want to mm-hmm. say. Um, I'm obsessed with Deadliest Catch. Oh, yeah. I can't. I If you put a reality show on a boat, 
I will watch every fucking oh, episode. You're gonna of it. love my new show, Big Fish Texas. Oh shit! Yeah, is yeah. it? Does it take place in a boat? It's National Geographic. It's. And a, I'm on board. It's a family that is the uh, one family, the Gwyndon family, catches about 25 percent of the fresh fish that comes out of the Gulf that's consumed in the United States. So it's just about the challenges they face going, catching fish, coming back. And what's interesting about it is because it's National Geographic, there's a big sustainability angle to it. Yeah. Which I wasn't expecting. You know, you think about fishermen, they're just like, yeah, let's pull that dolphin onto the boat. Yeah. Got him. But no, it's very much about sustainability and trying to keep the oceans healthy so that it'll continue to provide for their family yeah, for years if, to come. If they so, overfish, yeah. everyone is fucked. There you go. Yeah. And How fi- many of them are there? There's, uh, let's see, there's three sons who are all kind of vying to take over when the dad retires. And there's the dad and the dad's brother. So it's Buddy and Kenny are the, the older generation. And their dad is actually around, too. And then all their wives and all their kids. Yeah. So it's a big family, seven or eight of them. Is it of, like, a la Duck Dynasty where we really get to know these people? Or is it more about their work on the boats? It's There are beards. So it's similar yes. that way. Great. Um yeah, you do get to know them. It is it is about character. It's about family relationships, and it's about characters who are running a business together. It's not it's not a comedy. It's not script soft scripted the yeah, way yeah. that some other shows are. Um, but yeah, it's it, you're on you're on the boat quite a lot, and you're seeing some interesting stuff happen. Was there a reality show that you remember that sort of struck you early on when the I mean, I guess what the inception of what is known today as reality TV, like, uh, like MTV's uh, uh, Real World, mm-hmm. um, was there a show uh, when you were figuring out like how you wanted to tell stories as a filmmaker that has stuck with you and still informs your work today? A reality show? Yeah. Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Like one that some of your producers always go back to. Like that episode of Such and Such was the perfect story told, you know. Yeah, you know, it's not – reality TV doesn't really constitute a big part of what inspires me, I have to be mm-hmm. honest. It's more films and, and scripted yeah. shows. Um, I did watch The Real World periodically when I was younger, but I always thought of reality TV as having very low nutritional value. And so people just sort of graze on it constantly as opposed mm. to like a great film, you know, like a Fellini film. Sure. Where it's almost like a, this is this is something dense with nutritional intellectual value. Yeah. So, you know, I would try to bring the uh, my background in as a as a cinephile to to the reality shows that I was producing and say, mm. okay, what can I do that will actually investigate character in this show in a way that's just not just surface and not just spoon feeding the audience. And, you know, with various degrees of success and failure, I've tried to do that with the yeah. shows that I've produced. The the one that I always go back to is the Osbournes. But there was one scene that I'll never forget. It was a very simple scene, but it told the story so well without using any words. And you got to know every character in a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. There was a, one of the first episodes, Ozzy's pouring orange juice into a glass and he can't do it because he's shaking. Wow. And it's just, it's just the music's like, and he's kind of stumbling in there and trying to get the thing off and then he gets it and he's just pouring it <laughs> everywhere and every member of the family walks into the room and is just like, the fuck are you doing, Dad? And 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 the daughter is just sort of like brusquely makes a joke about him. The kid comes over and like tries to help the son. Jack tries right, to help right, him. Yeah. The wife comes in and starts berating him because it's a mess. And so all of their characters are set up like immediately. That's great. Just with one, it was just pouring glass into a pouring orange juice into a glass. And now I knew exactly who the fucking family was. Right. And I thought, was that? 
was the producer smart enough to set this up or did this just happen naturally? And we just got to see all, all, who all these characters were immediately. I always wondered, I was like, was there some genius moment saying, all right, what we're going to have you do now is pour orange juice in a glass. Right. And we're going to have these people come in. Or did it just happen? It's, always, it's something I wonder about when I watch reality television. Stuff that's that brilliant is usually real. Yeah, it's, it's hard to it's hard to produce something that's that efficient and economical when it comes to describing character and to get to the performances, right? And for them to be believable. Yeah, you can see the stuff that feels really produced. It's usually something that the show just needs for exposition. It's like, oh, yeah. let's let's get let's let's do this little scene because it'll set up what's going to happen. Exactly. Later. What shows should my listeners be watching? What 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 reality shows are sort of your your favorites? Uh. Of course, the ones I, that like, you... Like I said, Vice is... Uh, yeah. I think Vice is good. I think Naked and Afraid is good. Um, I honestly... That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint. I don't no, watch... No, no, no. It's I all don't good. watch a ton of TV. Yeah, I yeah, tend yeah. To, I, I like, you know, when I do watch TV, I usually watch scripted shows. Yeah, um, absolutely. But there was, you know, you were asking earlier about a reality show that really... Uh, informed my taste or approach. I thought there there was an episode of Flavor of Love, an early season of Flavor of Love, yeah. where one of the contestants got drunk and took a shit on the staircase. And uh, I don't know if you remember this episode, but <laughs> no. to me it just said everything about, you know, what it means to to fall in love with Flav and what you'll what you'll do, how you'll <laughs> You, you give up a lot of your dignity yeah. when, when you feel that kind of passion, right? And uh, and she did. I mean, and she she didn't she didn't mind what had happened because nope. worth it. Not at all. Absolutely yeah. worth it. Um, so how does one how does one go about becoming an op ed writer for the Sunday New York Times? That was a it was a cool thing. So I've written a couple of articles over the last few years um, about my experience producing reality television. I wrote an article for Vulture a little while ago. I wrote mm. an article for Defamer. They're usually topical articles that are about other things, but they're looking for the reality producer's perspective. So I'm happy to do that because it's a way for me to sort of examine my own choices and decisions and what I do in a way that's mm. not just I'm not just plugged into making reality TV. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of like looking at it Absolutely. from a bird's eye view. And it also in some sense I feel like it's a form of atonement for contributing perhaps <laughs> to the stupefaction stupefaction of a, the United States. I don't know if that's a word. Stup yeah. Stupefaction? Stu sure, I think so. Endumberment? Yeah, uh, that one yeah, also that's, works. That's a better one. Uh. Um yeah, so uh, so what happened was uh, a really great editor from the New York Times called me at work, and I think – so when you Google reality TV producer, the first thing that comes up is an article that I wrote. Um, Holy and, cow. And I think that at the time when she uh, when she had contacted me, it was two of the first three things were articles that I'd wrote, which I, I had no idea until she told me that. Wow. Um, and she asked me if I was interested in writing about politics. Um, I told her that, you know, I, I don't exactly have my finger on the pulse of politics right now. I've definitely had times in my life where I've been more interested in it, mm -hmm. but I've been a little bit turned off this season. But I have been, I have been following it, and I, I am interested in what's happening with the GOP primaries. So yeah. we talked a little bit about Trump. And I, uh, I told her a little bit about the reality television casting and development process. And she said, well, that sounds like a really interesting idea for an article. And then she sort of emailed me a bullet-pointed list of uh, the points that we discussed in our conversation so you could structure it like this. Um, and we took it from there. Wow. Yeah. And when you sent, when you submitted it to her, 
did she did she like give you notes and send it back and sort of like move this here, kind of trim this here? Absolutely. Did yes. it all? Did they all make sense? It was, the notes. It was great. It's like you're working with the all stars when it's the exactly. New York Times. I mean, she was so dead on. I've never yeah. had that kind of editorial attention before. It was just, it was fantastic. God. It's like, God, that's making this article better. Man, you know, I, I spoke to a guy several months ago, this guy, Ryan Knighton, who's been on This American Life a bunch of times. And he talks about like, telling stories and he talks about um, Ira Glass in that way. Like he understands how to edit. Mm-hmm. That's one of his great skills is he knows how to take 50,000 words and make it 10. And all those 10, that's, it's like a lightning bolt. All yeah. the fat is trimmed and exact, every exact point of the story that's necessary is there. And the audience, it's very easy for the audience to just let it in. Yeah. I feel like an editor for the Sunday New York Times op-ed page or the, or the Sunday review would probably have that skill. Yeah. Her did, name's Rachel Dry and she was Rachel fantastic. Dry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when did you know that it was going to be in print? I think it was the day after Yom Kippur, which is uh, which is interesting. I went home to North Carolina for Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. and it was a you know, like I said, writing about reality TV is a form of atonement. So it was uh, I, <laughs> very, I I wrote very most of the article on the on the flight home, and then uh, I sent it to her. She sent me uh, some revisions, some restructuring. I sent another draft to her, and she said, "Well, everybody here likes it. It looks like we're gonna. It looks like we're gonna publish it." Let's. She had some more notes, but I think it was it was about Thursday of that week, uh, last week. That, Holy moly! Yeah, yeah. And then it was fun because I was in New York on Sunday when it came oh, out. That was my next yeah. question. Yeah. So what did you do? Uh, my wife and I had gone out to see a play that a friend of ours was in. We flew to New York to see our friend in this play called Summer Fuel. Um, it's an off-off Broadway play that was great to see. And yeah. So we, we went and saw the play and then we got shithoused and then uh, stayed out till three in the morning and eating pizza. And, great. You know, classic New York yeah. night. Uh, got back to the place we were staying, uh, passed out. And then she she brought me the pa- she The paper was right outside the door when we woke up and she, my wife brought it in and it just, it just cut right through that hangover. It was great. Holy it was great to see it in print. It was really a lot of fun. What did it feel like to open that Sunday review and see your name there? I mean, it's just a great feeling. Sobering, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, now a lot of the pleasures that we feel in life are experienced kind of in iterations on social media, you know? Yes, it's like not a, tangible. Yeah, it's a, it's a full day of, uh, you know, periodically, getting little pings that like someone else mm-hmm. has, has posted or shared or mm-hmm. sent something and, and it's a lot of fun I mean it's it's kind of lame to be on your phone all day while you're walking around New York and we went to the Whitney to see the uh, the exhibit that just ended but cool. at the same time it was it was a, just another dimension of enjoying this and, and having people respond to it well there's a reason that you're here sitting across from me I read it at, as I was drinking my coffee, uh, reading the Times before football started on Sunday. And this article, I thought, was just, it's exceptional. Thank you. It's really brilliantly written. And I wanted to read it myself, and I thought, nope. It says he's in Los Angeles. I'm going to just reach out and hope that Seth is around and able to come in and read this. Um, Seth is here. I'm going to give him my computer now. He's going to read it. Uh, and uh, it's called Donald Trump our reality TV candidate. The first time I met Dolores Hughes, known as Mima, she was dressed in a purple muumuu, searching her kitchen for her false teeth. She warned me not to let her dog Tigger inside because it would attack me. Dog fights were common at Mima's house. Her daughter had the stitches to prove it. 
By the end of the day, Mima was leading dozens of moonshine-drunk neighbors in a round of happy birthday. It was my birthday. And I thought to myself, not only have I just met my new favorite person, but this person is reality TV gold. <laughs> Mima speaks her mind. She casually insults the people she loves most. And she doesn't care what anyone thinks about her. Just like another reality television star, Donald Trump. On the Reels Network's Hollywood Hillbillies, a fish-out-of-water reality sitcom about a Southern family relocating to Los Angeles, Mima's charming denigration of all things Hollywood has made her a cult star, the same way Mr. Trump's denigration of contemporary politics and governance has made him a popular presidential candidate. I've been working in reality television for about 10 years, and I can tell you that Mr. Trump is exactly what we look for in our casting process. He's uncomplicated and authentic. You can understand his entire personality from a 15-second soundbite. His brand is blunt self-promotion. His buildings are big and gold, shouting TRUMP in all caps. The Donald has absolute confidence, even in his most wrong-headed opinions, and he doubles down on every mistake, comfortable in the assurance that his wealth provides evidence for his intelligence. He doesn't need to be good at his job. If he fails, he creates chaos and chaos makes good TV. He pulls in the numbers, too. The season one finale of his long-running show, The Apprentice, drew 28 million viewers. Now, the Republican debates featuring Mr. Trump are drawing record-breaking numbers. Nearly 23 million viewers turned into the CNN debate this month. 24 million watched the Fox News debate in August. As a reality TV professional, I would be lucky to strike gold like Donald Trump once or twice in a career. Gurney Productions found it with the Robertson clan on Duck Dynasty. You might watch a thousand casting tapes before you find a character half as watchable as Uncle Cy on Duck Dynasty or Kim Kardashian or Flava Flav. I can tell in 30 seconds of a Skype interview if a person is worthy of a show. I once talked to a fascinating young man who sells custom armored vehicles to warlords in Africa. He was thoughtful, soft-spoken, conflicted about his work, dead wrong for a reality show. In the various guilty pleasure slash train wreck formats of reality TV, development execs look for larger-than-life personalities who speak their mind and don't shy away from conflict. Self-awareness is a liability. They reveal their character through conflict. And the bigger the character, the deeper the conflict, the better the show. A few years ago, I worked on the Wii TV series Bridezilla's, a show that thrived on the conflict between a bride and anyone in her path. This sub-genre of reality TV terrible people behaving badly, works because friction is baked into the format. At the very least, I could usually count on drunken bridesmaids brawling over the tossed bouquet. Political campaigns have their conflict too, but it's often too nuanced for a broad audience. Mr. Trump has cut through all that. His ad hominem attacks have become his signature move. Even when he professes to be holding back, as when he said of Senator Rand Paul, I never attacked him on his looks, he still gets a jab in there somewhere. Believe me, there's plenty of subject matter. Donald Trump is the presidential candidate that reality TV made. An electorate trained in voting contestants on and off shows like American Idol wants to keep him around because he makes things interesting. Instead of any plausible policy stance, Mr. Trump has built his campaign around an entertaining TV persona. Reality television has always been fixated on the trappings of wealth, from the Real Housewives to the Kardashians to the Vanderpumps. 
In that sense, it's no different from any popular entertainment, from 19th century novels to dynasty. We like stories about the rich, and for a lot of reasons. They live out our aspirations, and their mistakes and foibles shrink the gulf between their lives and ours. In a sense, Mr. Trump's immersion in the medium of reality TV normalizes his wealth. He connects with an audience for whom he represents the sort of rich guy they would be if they had the money. Even if Mr. Trump's poll numbers do begin to dwindle as the GOP electorate gets to know him better, he'll continue to draw an audience. In fact, Mr. Trump may be even more entertaining as an underdog, when he'll have even less incentive to play nice. That's because reality shows thrive on high stakes, and there's nothing higher than leadership of the number one country in the world. Nobody tunes into Deadliest Catch to watch a routine fishing trip. We want to feel that the boat could capsize at any moment and four tons of king crabs could crush the greenhorn beneath their writhing weight. So, no surprise, Mr. Trump rates. Love him or hate him, he makes us feel as if the future of our country is teetering on the precipice. It might be interesting. It might be entertaining to watch our country implode under his leadership, but one of the great pleasures of reality television is being able to turn it off when you've had enough. Seth, it's fucking great. Thanks, man. God damn, is Thank that Thank you good. so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, I, I sent it to like so many of my friends. I just thought it was... Self-awareness is a liability. You know, it's, it's interesting. There was an article that a guy named Mark Leibovich wrote for the, uh, I think, the Times Magazine on Sunday, where he said Donald Trump is the most self-involved and least introspective person he's ever met in or out of politics. Holy and shit. And that just defines his, you know, narcissistic personality. Yeah, that's saying something. Yeah. You talk about in that article that, that you know you know within 30 seconds of a Skype call whether or not someone can be a star. Yeah. What's the first thing that makes you think, yes. An accent, a thick accent. Yeah. That's right. a, a loud voice and a thick accent and a lot of simple declarative sentences. It doesn't matter ha. if it's Southern or if it's Valley Girl or if or it's Boston, Boston, or, Minnesota. Yeah. Right. Um, someone who's a regional character who seems like they shoot from the hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they, they don't pull their punches. Yeah. That's what you're looking for. And short declarative sentences is is that is that something that you've that that you've learned, or is that something that some producer told you? Because that is so you are exactly right. You need that to cut. Absolutely right. You right. 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 You need you need to be able to cut people's uh, thoughts. Up. You can't have someone who has long run-on sentences. Yeah, I had someone on a reality show I recently produced who, who really just couldn't end a sentence. It was all <laughs> run-on sentences. The thoughts would keep coming, and she would keep talking, and it would get quieter and quieter. But there was never a full stop. Right. So I'd sit right. next to the camera, and I and I would gesture for her, full stop, stick the landing. Right, right. Put your foot on the brakes. Yeah. Do you have—are uh, you going to be writing any more op-ed uh, pieces? Is that something that you want to— uh... I, I would love become to become a regular voice for the Sunday Times. I don't know about the Sunday Times. That that's a high bar, but but I I want to be part of the conversation that we're having as a culture right now in terms of the kinds of entertainment that we're creating and how that affects the democratic process. Who wins the GOP primary? <sighs> that's a good question. I think it's I think it's probably going to wind up being Bush in the end. Me too. Um, I think that I, I mean you know Trump could potentially be, I, I don't think he's going to be the first orange president. I think it's, it's you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. That was a bad joke. Let's no, it's a great <laughs> joke. He's very, very orange. He's a very orange man. I, I think it's, um, 
Yeah, no, I think it's probably going to wind up being Bush just because he has the support of the establishment. And I think we're going to start to see the uh, media elites, you know, dig in a little bit more on Trump. And they're they're having too much fun right now. They don't, they also don't want him to go away because he's such a great story. The the ratings are insane. Until it gets to the very end, I feel like they're going to start going, oh, hold on. But as as long as people are tuning in every day to consume his bullshit, there's 10 more. Sorry. Yeah, right. No, there's 10 more more weeks, 10 more debates. There's what? ten more. There are ten more nationally televised debate, debates, and they go through March. And the CNN debate uh, broadcast was the their number one broadcast in their in CNN's history. It's fucking bananas. So it was you know twenty three million people. That's more than tuned in for Larry King's final sign yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. They they need that. MSNBC is yep. doing one. Telemundo is doing one. Yeah. They all want the ratings. Yeah. So I think they are incentivized to keep him in the race. Absolutely. And Iowa. I mean, why turn off that spigot? It is just filling them with money. Yeah. Why, uh, when I was in February or March. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's going to be a fascinating winter. You know, it's just you want to keep the the monster in the room because it keeps the movie Absol- interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Seth Grossman has been my guest today. He is an incredible, incredibly talented writer, and I'm I'm so glad that you read your piece. Um, thanks for coming in, man. I really appreciate I, it. I'd love doing this. Thank yeah, you so cool. much. Yeah, absolutely. Fantasy football is a game that I play. It's a game that millions of Americans play. Also, other people from other countries. It's a real fun game. But sometimes you draft a team and then you're stuck with that team for the entire year. Nope. Not with DraftKings. Your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong, but forget that nonsense. It's time to do weekly Weekly fantasy football at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. No season-long commitments. You got an injured player? No problem. Pick someone else up. And they are crowning a new millionaire every week this season. So make your love of football. Have it turn into a payday. Get some cash in your pockets. Believe me, you've never experienced football like this before. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now. Use promo code READ and play for free with your first deposit in this Sunday's $1 million fantasy football contest where first place takes home hundred grand. Enter READ for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. We've arrived at Act 3 of Reading Aloud. Uh, we've had some jokes about geese, and then we talked about Donald Trump and reality television. Now, we're going to get sad, because I just like to finish it off with a fucking bucket of sad milk. So, I found myself, don't fucking furrow your brow at me, Sam. Well, don't say the phrase sad milk. You've never had a bowl of sad milk? No. You and I are different. I found myself in New York... Uh, This past August, I was there for work, and I always try to make time to go to my favorite bookstores. I really love The Strand. Um, Drama books is really fun if you're into plays and that kind of stuff. And Three Lives and Company is down on West 10th Street in the West Village. It's the comp. I found it because it was the cover of that Jonathan Franzen book, How to Be Alone. it's a wonderful store, and it's just the most charming place you'll ever be. It's so West Village, New York. Um, and I like to go there because I like the color of the walls, <laughs> and the books are shiny, and the people who work there are nice. And there's a cool coffee shop around the corner. Anyway, blah blah blah. I end up at this bookstore, and I'm perusing, and I see this book in front of me, and there is a beautiful young woman on the cover. So I'm immediately drawn to it because beautiful young women are appealing. And I picked it up, and I thought, well, this is a very serious bookstore in a big literary city. 
this must be a very specific choice to put on the table. I don't know how they make those decisions, people that work at bookstores, what books to put on the table and what not to. But this book was on the table next to two other books that I'd heard of. And I picked it up and it says, The Instant New York Times Bestseller, A Triumph, Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times. And I thought, whoa, who is this woman? Um, it's called The Opposite of Loneliness. And it's Essays and Stories by Marina Keegan. And... I looked at this beautiful woman on the cover, and I turned it over, and I read about her, and then I read the introduction, and I teared up in the bookstore, and quickly gave the book to the checkout gal, and made my way out of there. And I was working in Philadelphia the following day, so I had a train to catch, so I brought this book with me uh, on the train, sat in the train, and read a good portion of it, and then I was flying home from Philadelphia to Los Angeles and finished it on the plane. It's a very easy book. It's a, it's a collection of essays, so I jumped around a bit. But Marina Keegan, um, well, I'll just, I'll just read you the introduction, and then we can, um, we can talk after that. So this is an intro written by her college professor, uh, whose name is Anne Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N. And it's, uh, it's really wonderful, so I'm going to read it now. High on their posthumous pedestals, the dead become hard to see. Grief, deference, and the homogenizing effects of adulation blur the details, flatten the bumps, sand off the sharp corners. Marina was brilliant, kind, and idealistic. I hope I never forget that she was also fierce, edgy, and provocative a little wild, more than a little contrarian. If you wanted a smooth ride, Marina wasn't your vehicle. When we met for an hour-long conference to edit her first essay together, we got through three and a half lines. She resisted my suggestions because she didn't want to sound like me. She wanted to sound like herself. In class, she had strong opinions about the writers we read. She hated Lucy Greeley, even though most of her classmates loved her, and loved Joyce Maynard, even though most of her classmates hated her. She both admired and envied other talented young writers. When I posted exemplary essays by two students from a previous class, she wrote, all caps, Ah, Alice's essay is so good. Oh, my God. Elise's is so good, too. Oh, my gosh. No, I won't get dampened. She frequently lost her keys in her cell phone, sometimes for days, sometimes inside her bag, and infinitely capacious inkstone tote. You might have expected someone as entropic as Marina to choose a bag with a zipper, but as in all else, openness was her hallmark. She was given to procrastination and the all-nighters that inevitably followed. She was frustrated by deadlines, bureaucracies, obtuse politicians, the gap between theory and practice, her roommate's habit of using a knife to cut bread and then dipping it in the Nutella jar, and her own tendency to forget things all of which inspired the all-purpose email and text expletive gah. The summer between her junior and senior years, everything went so well for Marina that she had few occasions to say gah. She had once papered her bedroom wall with New Yorker covers. Now she was interning in the New Yorker's fiction department, combing its slush pile for hidden gems and getting published on its book blog. One of her plays was selected for a stage reading at a major theater festival. And she wrote much of another by, as she put it, clocking in three hours, parentheses, no excuses, every day. 
During that summer, Marina also find time to write to her teachers and friends. Having just read an essay in which I mentioned the excuses that the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, an inveterate procrastinator, had made for his tardy correspondence, she began one email. I'm so sorry about the delay in writing to you. The fact of the matter is I've taken ill after wearing excessively thin breeches and bad weather, not to mention because of my toothache, insomnia, gout, cough, boils, inflamed eyes, swollen testicles, and raging epistolophobia. And she ended it, And above all, be at peace with yourself, and a double blessing to me, who am, my dear professor, anxiously, your fond student. She explained in a postscript to a later email, Since reading those Coleridge letters, i become obsessed with these types of signatures. They're just so good. Like that moment with the comma before the line break. I love that moment. Coleridge, thank you. But she couldn't wait to get back to college. Quote, I'm realizing how much I love Yale. With my minutes before sleep preoccupied with the future for the first time in a while, I'm beginning to regard Yale with a kind of premature nostalgia. I want to take every class in the catalog. I want to see every building. I want to spend time with all my friends. And she did, pretty much flying through her senior year with every pore open, collecting prizes, working as Harold Bloom's research assistant, acting in two plays and writing a third, serving as president of the Yale College Democrats, helping to organize Occupy Yale, taking the train to New York every Thursday to intern at the Paris Review, lining up a post-graduation job at the New Yorker, writing during every spare minute, falling in love. When a friend who had graduated the previous year asked her permission to show some of her work in students in Peru, she responded, yes to everything. Five days after Marina graduated magna cum laude, I got an email from another student of mine. Anne, sorry to bother you this late, but there's some terrible news that I don't know if you've heard. Please call me. Marina's boyfriend had been driving her from brunch with her grandmother near Boston to her family's summer house on Cape Cod to celebrate her father's 55th birthday. Her parents were waiting with lobsters, and because Marina had celiac disease and couldn't digest wheat, a homemade gluten-free strawberry shortcake. Her boyfriend, who was neither speeding nor drinking, fell asleep at the wheel. The car hit a guardrail and rolled over twice. Marina was killed. Her boyfriend was unhurt. Marina's parents invited him to their house the next day and embraced him. They wrote the state police to ask that no charges of vehicular homicide be brought because it would break Marina's heart to know her boyfriend would have to suffer more than he already is. When he went to court, the Keegans accompanied him. The charges were dropped. At Marina's memorial service, I had never seen so many young people cry, not just cry, but shake so hard I feared their ribs would break. Within a week, The Opposite of Loneliness, an essay that had appeared in the graduation issue of the Yale Daily News, had been read by more than a million people. Quote, We're so young. We're so young, Marina had written. We're 22 years old. We have so much time. When a young person dies, much of the tragedy lies in her promise. What she would have done. But Marina left what she had already done, an entire body of writing, far more than can fit between these covers. As her parents and friends and I gathered her work trying to find the most recent version of every story and essay, we knew that none of it was in exactly the form she would have wanted to publish. 
she was a demon reviser, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, even when everyone else thought something was done. Quote, there can always be better writing. We knew we couldn't rewrite her work, only she could have done that. Still, every time I reread these nine stories and nine essays, they sound exactly like her, and I don't want to change a word. Marina wouldn't want to be remembered because she's dead. She would want to be remembered because she's good. I have seen too many young writers give up because they couldn't handle the repeated failures their profession threw at them. They had talent, but they lacked determination and resilience. Marina had all three, and that's why I'm certain she would have succeeded. She once wrote me on the night that Yale's secret societies, senior social clubs, including Skull and Bones, Scroll and Key and Book and Snake, that meet in windowless buildings called tombs, tapped their new members. She had not been chosen. Quote, I'm in our WAO room right now, actually, she began. WAO was the acronym for our writing class, writing about oneself. Marina joked that the following year, its students should continue to meet for a DAO, drinking about oneself. Quote, I ended up getting a bit screwed over on the secret society front, so I vowed to spend the 12 hours a week writing a novel. Tonight is tap. If I was willing to devote that much time chatting in a tomb, I should be willing to devote it to writing. 6 to 12, Sundays and Thursdays. Might call it book and book, smiley face. She had devoted less than two hours to disappointment before she moved on. If she'd been tapped by Book and Snake, this book would not exist. After Marina's death, her father told me about a sailing race she'd entered when she was 14. The race in Wellfleet Harbor on the outer end of Cape Cod was for a class of solo 14-foot dinghies called lasers. The junior sailors, 15 and under, were to start at the same time as the adults. Marina was hoping for a calm day. She thought she could beat everyone, including the adults, both because she was an expert sailor and because she weighed less than 100 pounds. A heavy sailor slows a boat just as a heavy jockey slows a racehorse. But the day wasn't calm. There were 40-knot winds and three-foot waves. Before the race started, the entire junior division dropped out, along with all the women, except Marina. In weather like that, lightness is not an asset, especially when the boat is heading upwind. Keeping it stable is almost impossible. Marina capsized more times than her parents could count. Each time, the boat tipped onto its side, and she was thrown into the water. She had to swim to the bow, into the wind, climb onto the centerboard, stand on it while holding onto the gunwale, lean backward, pull hard enough to lift 76 square feet of wet sail out of the water, climb back into the boat, and readjust the sail all with the wind blowing and howling and the waves crashing into and over her. Marina's original goal had been to win. Her new goal was to finish. Several of the men gave up, but Marina continued. In perfect weather, the race would have taken her 15 minutes. It took her almost an hour. She came in second to last to incredulous applause. She was soaking wet. Her hair was bedraggled, and her hands were bloody from gripping the lines. A few hours after Marina was told that making it as a writer today was virtually impossible, she arrived late to a meeting of her spoken word poetry group at Yale. A friend of hers recalls that her face was flushed, and her eyes were like sharp, wet stones. I've decided I'm going to be a writer, she said. Like, a real one. With my life. Ann Fadiman, November 12th, 2013. Yeah, it's just uh, really inspiring. I just love the bit about uh, her being passed over for a secret society and said, well, all right, instead of spending that time in a tomb talking about bullshit, I'm going to devote 
those 12 hours a week, and I'm fucking 21, to writing a novel. Ugh, just devastating. Unbelievable. Um, Marina Keegan was an award-winning author, journalist, playwright, poet, actress, and activist. Her nonfiction has been published in the New York Times. Her fiction has been published on NewYorker.com and read on NPR's Selected Shorts which is the inspiration for this podcast. Her musical Independence was a New York Times critic's pick. Marina's final essay for the Yale Daily News, The Opposite of Loneliness, became an instant global sensation viewed by more than 1.4 million people from 98 countries. For more information, please visit www.theoppositeofloneliness.com. The Opposite of Loneliness was her graduate speech. She delivered the address at graduation at Yale when she was a senior. And I would read that for you, but um, I'm going to let you read it yourselves. So pick up this collection. Um, it's so much more about the writing. The context that the writing is in is uh, pretty profound. So that's another episode of Reading Aloud. Uh, my name is Nate Cordry. Thank you so much to Ann Fadiman, who uh, put the collection together of Marina Keegan's work. And thanks so much, um, it was really fun to talk to Seth. And thanks to The Onion and to Michael Freeman for reading that first piece. To you, your job is to go get purity and read it and then come back and uh, share your thoughts with us at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Again, my name is Nate Cordry, and I'm so glad that you listened to the show. Uh, come back and meet me next week and we'll do some more reading. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hello, I'm Emily Foster. And I'm Deanna Raphael, and we are the hosts of OMFG, the podcast that helps you get hip to what the youths are up to. And helps you get chill AF. Am I using that right? We're V chill, Emily. You know, but right now we are um, actually here for a very eye-opening episode we just released. Very exciting. Lizzie Velasquez was born with an inability to gain weight. After being labeled the ugliest woman in the world on YouTube, she did a TED Talk on the epidemic of online bullying. Now she's fighting for Congress to pass an anti-bullying bill, and starting this week, you can see her incredible documentary, A Brave Heart. We are obsessed with her. We talk to her. And here's a little piece of what she had to say. Every time I see a bad comment or someone says something, it doesn't really, I mean, there are times it will upset me. I mean, I'm human. But at the same time, there are times where I see it and I think uh, there, I really do still have a job to do. There are still people that are needing help or needing to see that there are there is a different outlet for your anger. To hear more, listen to Lizzie Velasquez, A Brave Heart on OMFG. And keep listening to OMFG on Wolf Pop for more interviews with some amazing young people. You can listen on iTunes, Howl, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.